Hello and welcome to the Own Your Role podcast. I'm your host, Dean Watt, and I'm your guide to exceptional leadership and dynamic culture in your business. Join me each week as we explore practical tips through fun and fascinating interviews with successful business owners who've mastered the art of leadership. Over the last 20 years as a keynote speaker, author, and high-performing team transformation specialist, I've been fascinated by what it takes to create a great culture and dedicated team members in a business. When leaders truly own their roles and empower their team members to do the same, a great culture is always the result. So whether you're on your couch or in your car, on a treadmill or hiking up a hill, get ready to be inspired and entertained as you learn exactly how to own your role. Welcome, everybody, once again to Own Your Role. My name is Dino Watt. Excited to have you here for another episode of the show. And today, excited to talk about taking out your trash, man, getting rid of some of the crap that you are living with and that keeps piling up and stopping you from being the best you you can possibly be. And our uh, guest today, Brian Bogart, is going to share with us how he got to this place and his business and help people get rid of their trash. But before we do, I want to always thank you again for sharing this podcast with those that you know would benefit from it and liking it and subscribing it. And we've just grown so much because of you. And I really appreciate you being here every week, listening from the first iteration of the podcast, Propreneur Now to Own Your Role. So with that, let's get things started. Brian, welcome to the show. Man, I'm happy to be here with you today, Dino. Well, Brian, where are you calling in from? First of all, where are you stationed typically? I'm in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Really? Okay. So you're dealing with the melting heat right now. It's, it's pretty warm. Yeah. It was funny. I was talking to uh, my in-laws over the weekend. I typically don't look at the weather in the middle of the summertime because if I see that seven to 10 day forecast and it's above 115 in any one of that window, I just am like, Oh, all right. Well, that's what it's going to be. It is. It's almost melting heat, but uh, I'm a local here. I love it. Uh, It's just that when it gets above 115, the air conditioners don't work quite as well. It's weird how that works, right? It's like uh, where you need them the most. My, a lot of my family is out in Arizona. I actually worked a summer in Yuma, Arizona, outdoors, knocking doors, doing uh, door-to-door sales. I hated every moment of it. It was the word. It was, I literally walked down the street called H-E-I-L Street, Hell Street. And it was like that. Yeah, for sure. So (laughs) stay cool, man. Stay cool. Well, uh, Brian, I want to get into, as I always do, I dive directly into your story. I think story is what connects all of us as a human existence. So tell us a little bit about your story, where you started and how you got kind of where you are now. Yeah, well, I'm going to start since we talked about Arizona and we talked about the heat. Let's start on August 10th, 1992, 10 p.m. And it was 116 degree day that day. Wow. My mom, my brother and I went to our local Walmart to get a one inch paintbrush. And as we were headed back to our car, anyone who's known me for more than about two minutes knows I talk fast. I walk fast. I've always had a vigor for life. I was the first one in the car. I wanted to get home and put that paintbrush to use. Yeah. But brother, man, this was back in the days before there was key fobs. So I had to wait for my mom and my brother to literally catch up. My mom to reach her hand in her purse, grab her keys, pull them out, stick them in the door, turn them. So we could go on with our way. And while all that was taking place, a truck pulled up in front of the store, parked, and the driver and middle passenger got out. Passenger all the way to the right felt the truck moving backwards. So Dino, he did what any one of us would do, and he scooted over to put his foot on the brake, but he instead hit the gas. Combination of shock and force threw him up on the steering wheel, up on the dashboard, and before you know it, he was catapulting 40 miles an hour across the parking lot right at me with no time to react. We were parked in an end spot. He went up over the median in the end spot, cleared the tree, hit our car, knocked me over, ran over me diagonally, tearing my spleen and leaving a tire track scar on my stomach, and continuing on to sever my left arm completely from my body. Wow. 
the next thing my mom hears is my brother's voice, who's 14 months older than me, saying, Mom, Brian's arm is over there. And as she gazes up the parking lot to my arm 10 feet away, she sees a string of muscle cooking like hamburger on the asphalt. Now, I always have to pause in this exact moment because I have to acknowledge the woman that's responsible for my life. My mom is one of those, but she's not the one who saved my life in the moment. There was a nurse that walked out of the store right when this took place. I've said for years that I was forever indebted to this woman for a choice to go into action in that moment. And that statement became more powerful last August when I met her for the first time on the 30th anniversary of the accident. Wow. Because I learned that she had a friend with her that day who was also a nurse who had all the same training that she did, who chose to go on with her day. Now, I'll be really clear. She had every right to do that. There's no malintent. I don't, I don't have any hurt feelings. That was all well within her right, her choice. But what I want to reinforce and impress upon is the power of a singular choice and the ripple effect it can have even when you don't know why you're doing it. Because she stepped in, stopped the bleeding on the main wound and saved my life and instructed some innocent bystanders to run inside, grab a cooler and fill it with ice to get my arm on ice within minutes. Had it not been for this woman, Dino, I either would not be here with you today or I'd be here with you today with a cleaned up stump. That's just the reality. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So to your whole point on story, that's the last thing I'll say. And then I'll, I'll, I'll pause. I realize how unique my story is. Mm-hmm. But the more I've told it, the more work I've done with other people, the more I realize that every single one of you has a unique story. Regardless of the extremities of each one of our stories, what's important is that we learn to pause and become aware of the lessons we can extract from our stories so we can become intentional in how we apply those moving forward. Every single one of us has that ability, and we all have the ability to tap into the collective wisdom of other people's lessons to shorten our own curve to learning. So that's what I do on a daily basis now is really allow my truth to give others permission to live theirs. And uh, I know we'll probably unpack a whole variety of that through our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing uh, that story with us. My curiosity goes straight to the aftermath. Mm-hmm. You have this moment. Obviously, there's shock, there's overwhelm, there's everything that goes on. Do you remember what was your first reaction when you woke up in the hospital? Well, the first memory I have was believing that I was in a dream for about the first 48 hours. Mm. I remember the feeling of being between worlds, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very present, but I also was a witness to a lot that was happening around my medical treatment at the time. And once that settled in, the next thought was, uh, even at seven, the, the feeling of feeling sorry for myself. Why me? Right. Why did this happen to me? Why did this hit? What's my life going to look like? What does this mean for me? Right. All the all the thoughts and the feelings that start to roll with that. And that didn't last for very long either because we were in the ICU. And so we had lots of families that were in the ICU who started coming up to us saying, so we're so sorry for what happened to you. What can we do to help you? And then come to find out their kids laying in a hospital bed next to me with a terminal illness and doesn't know if they're going to live for another 30 days. I didn't know whether or not my arm would be successfully reattached or if I'd ever gain the function that I have today at that point. But what I did have was my life, right? The immediate threat to my life was over. Mm. And so it just centered me in perspective. And that was where one of my core lessons came from is I learned really, really early not to get stuck by the things that have happened to me, but instead get moved by what I can do with them. And it's formed a belief that I believe that move people, move people. So now I'm just trying to move as many people as possible. I think the power of that, I, I teach pers- uh, perspective all the time. It's one of the first lessons I always teach on, on stage when I'm with my clients, because most of us live in perception, you know, our own reality versus perspective. What is other people's reality? And that you were able to understand that and grasp that in whatever manner that was at seven years old, super 
powerful and obviously made a huge difference in your recovery. So it did. And I want to be really clear. It, that's not without other damaging factors that came along with it. And we'll unpack, sure, I'm sure. People that. But, but yes, it was a gift for me to not be in the victim state in that place in the hospital when I was trying to figure out what those next steps were looking like. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really blessed. I was really oh. blessed to have that perspective brought to me. Okay. But where did that come from? Because you gotta, I've got to believe that either, uh, of course, you being able to see that from a perspective, was it, were you raised with a positive mindset? Were you raised with being able to see certain things differently? Or, or were you like, I always talk to people about with my relationship with my wife and stuff. I come with from a family of both my parents divorced three times, blah, blah, blah. Like I learned from what not to do in my life. And I think people typically go either one of two routes, either, Ooh, I want to repeat that. And I appreciate that. Or I don't want to do that. So I'm gonna do something different. So where, where did you come from? You know, I've got phenomenal parents uh, that provided a really amazing environment for me. And frankly, they're responsible largely for a lot of the healing that took place in those first few years, guiding me through the process. Cause even though I had those moments and feelings at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was in a fog, right? Like I was, and looking back on it, I'm very clear on that. Now they were intimately aware of the unceasing medical treatments, years of physical therapy. And, you know, their belief system on this concept of not wanting their son to grow up without the use of his left arm Mm. became a source of great potential suffering for them. And so they willed themselves day in and day out to do what was necessary to do what was tough to only embrace the pains required to strengthen and heal me. So they embedded a philosophy pretty early on embracing pain to avoid suffering. Now, all that said, there's still a lot I didn't see for a lot of years, right? Because here's also what happened. I walked out of the hospital. I've got a teddy bear in between my arms. I'm at 90 degrees. And inevitably people are going to be like, Hey, what happened to you? Sure. Right. I'm this cute little seven-year-old boy. And they're expecting me to say, well, I was racing my brother down the street and I crashed my bike or I flew off the jungle gym or whatever. But my truth was very simple and it was very clear. So I just look at him deadpan in the eyes. I was run by a truck and my left arm was torn off. Mm. And I got really used to seeing jaws hit the floor. And 99% of people would pause immediately after saying that. And they'd turn to my parents for validation, which told me they didn't believe my own truth. Mm. Right. I wasn't being seen and understood. I wasn't feeling safe and protected. I wasn't connected at the deepest level because my truth, which is I'm wearing people are not accepting as my truth because they need external validation to even prove that it's okay. Yeah, And then those same people started viewing me through their lens of what they'd be capable of in my situation, immediately putting limitations into my world. And though these words were not there yet, the same feeling that I associate with these words was there at seven. I was like, fuck that. I'm not doing this shit. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my parents were very strong on mindset, mental toughness and understanding. And I'd gotten a lot of narratives that were around that. Like if you're mentally tough, if you've got a strong mindset, you can do anything. So that's all I focused on right? Like I got to get my mindset strong so I can do this. And here was what my external intellectual mindset narrative was. Brian's good. Brian's strong. Brian's capable. Brian can do anything himself. That was the external story. That was the external. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's whether those were words I was communicating or energy. That was the narrative that people associated with Brian. Oh man, he had a brush with death. He can handle anything. He can do all. And I did a bunch of epic shit, right? Overcame a lot, but What I didn't realize for 20 to 25 years through a whole series of other events that started to help me see all the trash that was created from what I believed was my transformation story. 
all it did was cause all these things that I didn't see, didn't understand. And the world was telling me to show up with a smile on. Right. And so what did I do? I pushed through. And every time I pushed through to show up and do something different, I'd push that proverbial trash even further down to the point that it was incrementally crushing me. Mm. And what I didn't realize is when I shut off physical pain, because it exceeded my ability to cope, which was largely an intellectual shift of protection. I also shut off emotional pain, mental pain, and spiritual pain for 20 to 25 years. Mm. And it almost cost me everything I care about. So I, I really appreciate you talking about that and, and talking about the results of what seemingly is a positive thing on the outside, but the shutdown that you had. So this is a personal story for me because my, I have a younger brother who was hit by a car, was coming home from school. Guy wanted to go around traffic, slammed into him, broke his femur, broke his, you know, his foot. And he never really recovered from what that meant about him. He had some other, you know, he was adopted. He had some fetal um, alcohol syndrome stuff going on, but he never really recovered. And, and his whole life until unfortunately he took his life a few years ago, it was the opposite of what you just talked about. It was that, it was that 20 year span. I guess it was, it wasn't the opposite. It was exactly what you talked about. He shut those things down. What does it mean about me? What is all this? And it was, it, I, I kind of assume you come across people and you tell your story that have similar type of situations that are struggling with getting out of that 20 year feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is it creates cellular memory. Our bodies go into fight or flight, which is a natural evolutionary response to survival. Right. Yeah. But what we're reacting to, what we're protecting from in most cases, isn't even real to what's right in front of us. It has everything to do with the cellular memory of our traumas. Mm. Right. And our traumas don't have to be you have an accident and you have all this physical destruction. It could literally be how your grandpa looked at you when you loaded the dishwasher incorrectly when you were four. And it told you that you're not worthy or good enough to be in their presence. That can put an embedded pattern of trash that will carry wow. forward 20 years. Again, I'm trying to give the spectrum because the other side of it is I've been doing this long enough. That's why I normalized my story in the beginning. Yeah. The number of people that I will hear my story and they be like, man, my trauma is nothing. No, fuck that. It doesn't matter what your trauma is because it's not about comparing to other people. It's about better understanding how it impacted you, the ways yeah. it's patterned forward in your life, the ways it still shows up in your intellectual and emotional narratives that keep you stuck because that's all that matters. And so, yes, it's a matter of helping people really start to normalize. But there are so many people who never actually heal because they never allow themselves to feel. Yeah. I believe if we don't feel, we don't heal. Sure. And that was what really started to open me up years later was just these small little pieces of external reflection of what the world was telling me who I was, mm. who the world wanted me to be. And me trying to live within that box because love for me was done through performance. It was done through connection. And I sought validity and love and connection all through performance. Mm. Right. In so many ways, shame impacted me at a deep level, anger bubbled up at a deep level, but it wasn't until I actually allowed myself to do the work on the healing that needed to happen inside my body, not to my physical body, mm. but my emotional body that I started to escape these same patterns. Well, let's go to that moment of the, here you are 20 years in, right. Of feeling this certain way in some ways, destructive, what was that moment that the, uh, the moment of this can't last, I can't continue down this route. There was a couple. So I'll bring you into a couple of them. Cause I think it's important to realize it wasn't just one moment and it Good. was layers, right? It yeah, was layers. Yeah, yep. Um, 
The first happened when I was 20. Uh, I rebroke my arm in a snowboarding injury. Same arm? Almost lost. Same arm. I almost lost wow. it again. Wow. And I went 10 months with it hanging by my side and went through seven surgeons who were afraid to touch me because of medical malpractice. Mm. Now, I was a junior in college at the time. I was in a non-Greek brotherhood. I had friends galore. I was in student government. I was surrounded by people. But it was one of the loneliest periods of time I've ever been in because mm. no one was actually there when I needed it the most. And at first, I had a little bit of resentment, a little bit of frustration. Like, what is this? These people call me my friends. But then I realized the world had just bought into my narrative because they just believed that Brian's good, Brian's strong, Brian's capable, Brian can do anything himself. And the narrative they added was, oh, and if he needs help, he'll ask for it. But I didn't have the courage in one of the most vulnerable periods in my life because I got into some of the darkest, deepest, depressed, most disconnected states of my entire adult life in that 10-month window. I had to really look inward and I realized that the world had just bought into my narrative, right? So if I was still in seek of human connection, but I was feeling completely disconnected because of all the ways I protected myself, then what do I do? So that next window of time was focused on vulnerability and authenticity and really honing and conditioning those as skill sets because I believe they're the glue that binds human connection. I got really, really good at sharing just enough to get other people to lower their armor. And then I could drive a freaking semi through and help them, which would again, further distract from me. <laughs> sure. But I didn't have a healthy model for chasing who, right? So what did the right. world tell me? What house, what car, what amount of money, what amount of success? Like I, ch I chased the what? Had a $10 million growing risk management employee benefits consulting business at age 27 that wow. ultimately ended up going to 15 million before I executed my buy sell. But at 27, I woke up having realized that every single thing I sought out to accomplish in my life, all the what's, which all happened to circle around the age 30, by the way, I had them all by age 27. But it cost me who I was. Mm. And that was the time I hired my first coach and started to do some repair. But it wasn't until another probably four years later that the full understanding of what I'd shut off hit. That was an opening, two opening windows to start raising awareness. It was when I was laying on the couch with my daughter, who was two around the time, We'd just been playing and she reaches her arm around my neck, gives me a kiss on the, sh on the cheek and says, I love you, Dada. And I broke down in tears. Now, I think tears are a sign of strength. And I think it's incredible when men can cry. I conditioned tears out of me. So when I'm now all of a sudden crying from a position of joy with my daughter, I'm like not understanding the world anymore because that mm. was such a paradigm shift for me. And I realized that if I've never felt joy to this degree, then every other emotion I've ever experienced is pale in comparison. It's, it's a numbed, shortened, compressed version of whatever the real emotion is. And so I started really slowing myself down to realize how much I was unconsciously actively suppressing every emotional feeling that would bubble up in my body. Mm. So I was literally shut off for 20 to 25 years, but here's the catch, brother. Human connection without emotion isn't human connection, right? Like it's not. And so that's what I had to really start to understand is, okay, if we're going to connect at the deepest level and emotion has to be a part of it, then it's the areas that we're protecting ourselves because of the trash from our past, because of our emotional triggers, behavioral patterns, and environmental conditioning that are actually causing us to be more disconnected than we've ever been. I want to really double down on what you said there. Human connection without emotion is not connection. Yep. And I think when we really look in that, space in our life of the times where we were saying we we're creating human connection. You know, you, you see this all the time in the business world, right? We're making, we're networking, we're connecting with other people, but we're not daring to talk about our emotions or connect with our emotions that way, right? That vulnerability would 
would be too challenging for ourselves. But the truth of the matter is, in most cases, when you really have that shift in business, it's because of the emotional part, not the networking part, not the fake part, whatever. Um, at 30, you have this moment where you say, all right, I need to get a coach. Was that because of a recognition of needing what you didn't have? Was it because it was the cool thing to do in the moment? Like what brought to that point of going, I need a coach because I can't figure this stuff out myself. What, what was yeah. it? Uh, it was a combination of things. Uh, I realized running in circles with many people who were making multiple six figures, seven figures and eight figures at a time. When I had the realization on the emptiness I felt inside, how disconnected mm. I had become, I really started to explore, um, is this just me? And I saw that it was way more of a normative pattern with a lot of high performers than yes. I really cared to ever admit until that time, right? Like there's very few high performers that I, in fact, I'm not sure I've met a single one ever who didn't deal with some capacity of shame, right? Yeah. Because there is such a driving factor behind such that low frequency emotion. And when I realized that so many others were feeling empty and disconnected alone, I had kids that were going to be coming on the way. I had all the what's that I ever wanted in the world. But here's what I started to also realize. I wasn't living congruently with who I was. I was living based on who the world told me who to be. Sure. And that shift, realizing that unconsciously, I believed, and I didn't know this until later, that if I built a life of significance, then the who's would just follow because people would want to be around me, right? They'd be attracted to me. They'd want to learn and they'd want to grow. And, and so this external perception of success was really still in seek of who. And that's when I was like, I have to get more aware. I have to get more intentional. Otherwise, I'm going to go down a path that is going to lead to guaranteed destruction. Um, and as I had kids over those next couple of years, that became really true. Um, you know, the first six months of my son's life, I missed uh, mm -hmm. because though I was there for the first week, I never readjusted my life. I was burning the candle at both ends. I was gone 16 hours a day, right? My wife was left alone. There was all these different gaps and I, I'll never get that time back. And so for me, there were so many things that I was doing to show up in the world because the more I did, the more I could do, the more I could control, the safer I felt, but it was also taking me further and further away from who I was and what I really wanted. And so I hired this coach. And what's funny is in the first month of working with him, he says, Bogart, you got to be doing this. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you've been speaking on stages since you were seven. You coach people all the time. You do all this philanthropic work. He goes, you're always creating impact. Why would you not get paid for it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, fuck off, buddy. I'm paying you a lot of money not to tell me how great I am, but to figure out this other shit. Now you want to add something else to my plate. Mm. What I realized was nine months later, like he was right. It's just, I didn't see that part of myself in that light yet. And so I had to take those periods of time to dig deep and be able to stand in my power and potential so that I could start to move there. But yeah. again, it's all a process, right? Like yeah. all of these are beginning states, but how I coached for the first three to four years is materially different than how we coach today because of other things that happened that I had to go deeper and deeper, not only for myself, but for my clients. Because again, it's always these pieces that keep people stuck. They always think it's the strategy and tactics. It never is. It's always 100% of the time, the trash from your past. But here's yeah. what everyone has to hear when they hear that. The trash from your past is not your fault. It mm -hmm. just becomes your responsibility once you become aware of it or you start burying others in yours. At 27, that's what I started to realize. 
I became aware of so much trash that I'd buried. And I was starting to be aware of all that I was burying my wife and my kids in, even though it was scratching the surface of what it really was over the next few years. Um, I saw no other option, brother. Yeah, I see that uh, a lot of, I think great coaches are able to see when you need to coach so that you can learn even more. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times for me, I know with the, years and years and years of different coaching masterminds. It's me being able to see more clearly as I'm coaching because I see myself in so many people, you see that reflectiveness of like, Oh dude, I got to do this. That trash from your past is so crucial because without, and you, you talk about this, I know in, in, in your one page description and it just so hit right on the nose with so many people that I see of, they think they can just leave it there, but it just builds up. And that trash, the more it builds up, the more it begins to stink and fester and, and grow maggots and all that other stuff, right? It's it never going away. Uh, even the even the landfills, you know, nobody likes to go to landfill because it just stinks. It's like just piling a bunch of crap. We're not getting rid of it. Um, I see this a lot from what you said just a moment ago, too, is so many high performers. I belong to a couple different masterminds, and sometimes I'll just sit back and hear these stories of addiction, you know, divorce. And I don't know, you probably don't know this about me. My mission in life is to reverse the direction of divorce, addiction, and suicide amongst leaders and their team members. And it's because I do see so much of this. And sometimes I feel almost bad going, all right, well, I have a happy marriage and uh, okay. But of course I have my own stuff and everybody's is relative. Like you said, it might not be my arm being torn off but it's something yep something it always is that is that scar tissue from my mm-hmm. childhood and it always is so talk to us about this trash talk to us about like how you are able to find people's trash or where do you maybe even see the most prevalent trash with high performers i deal a lot with high performers i talk about this all the time right you, you they're so high performers living in a world of people who aren't right? Their team members, their staff members, they're not high performers and it freaks them out because they don't know how to deal with that. So talk to me about what you see the most of. Well, what I can say definitively is that I think shame is hands down the most prevalent across the board. But the problem Mm. with shame is that it is the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing because it presents itself as fear, guilt, scarcity, perfectionism, control, like any number of other emotions, anger, right? Like all of it. And shame covers so many different perspectives. And there's two narratives to shame that most people aren't aware of. This is why I didn't know I had shame for so many years, because the first narrative that most people associate is I'm not worthy and I'm not good enough. I'd be lying if I told you I didn't have moments that I existed there, but that was never my predominant narrative. The -hmm. other side of it is when you shut that down, you show up in the arena and you're ready to go to battle. It's who the fuck do you think you are? See, everything major I ever did, I felt the need to apologize for. Why shame is so damaging is it checks you from the bottom and it checks you from the top and you feel like you're living within these boundaries of what the world has told you you should be. Should's a shame-based word because it implies whoever you are, whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing, it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so I can say, hands down, shame is the most predominant pattern I see in high performers. Now, where does that come from? How does it present? It can look very different based across that spectrum. So shame can be conditioned in a moment where one sibling gets preferential treatment over the other and the other never feels worthy, never feels good enough, always feels overlooked, right? It could be the first time someone got attention was in sports. And because they're now getting 
accolades and recognition and love and validation through them performing at a high level, that's where they put all of their attention. We start creating these narratives, these belief systems, both intellectually and emotionally throughout our lives that we only further seek information to validate and prove unconsciously, right? So high performers are those that are, you know, shame is going to be one of those patterns where it's like, I'm going to say yes to everybody for everything and not have any boundaries because I don't know how to effectively advocate for myself. And as a result, I'm actually burning myself as a result of it, but it's only because I want them to love me. And if I don't show up, they're not going to, mm-hmm. right? Like it's never feeling like your team see you understand your vision, but it's because you can't as a leader understand that it's because you're delivering everything through armor, which is only giving them a portion of the actual message. Mm right? There are so many things that happen as a result of this with high performers that keep us disconnected in our businesses, from our clients, from the wealth we want to generate. And that's why I developed the waste to wealth method, because it's five pillars that are guaranteed for any individual or organization to identify and remove or transform that waste so that it's either not in your way any longer, or it's transformed to a place where it's generating wealth and showing you how to connect and convert at the highest level in your relationships, business, life, and health. And That's the most common. Now, high performers also don't ever want to say they've struggled with self-worth. High performers often in that position are some of the last to want to actually dig into emotions. But what's interesting is the majority of them have a further degree of emotional intelligence and more emotional depth once they start to tap into it. Because those same situations that conditioned and patterned their performance were the same ones that caused them to be able to read people so they could redirect attention from themselves, make themselves small, protect others. See, they're all connected. Our trash and our treasure are formed in the same moments. And Mm. the treasure is typically formed by all the trash pressure. But we've got to alleviate the pressure and get to the source or sources before we can really start to move. Um, Talk to me about, because I want to go into the five pillars. Before we hit there, I want to talk about the shame around or how shame shows up with imposter syndrome. Because this is something we hear a lot, or I hear a lot about when it comes to, and I, and I mean, I've heard actors talk about being on the set thinking they're going to get fired any day and they end up being, a, you know, Academy Award. Yeah. Uh, it, all the way down to your CEOs who are like, are they going to figure out, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? So yeah. that shame cycle around imposter syndrome, I think is really an important uh, touchstone for us to really think about. It is. And you kind of touched on it a few times. Where do you see that showing up with people when it comes to imposter syndrome? So again, I think it can look a lot different depending on who and how it's coming out. But I'll give you an example, right? It's a CFO who runs her own financial advisory firm, for lack of a better term. She does accounting, um, more controller work, and like a a, a rent-a-CFO type services for a lot of small businesses, okay? She came from the big four accounting world. She knows her shit inside and out. She knows tax code. She knows accounting. This woman is brilliant. She has it all. But she'd never built a business before. So when she left the big four accounting firm and she's starting to build her own practice, she's been generating all these clients. But over the course of the first three to four years, she had created so much debt and mismanaged the way she was leveraging her growth so effectively that her credit score was wrecked. And she's all of a sudden sitting here like, holy shit, I have imposter syndrome. Why is anybody going to hire me if I can't even take care of my own? Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Right. And how many of us have those narratives where it's like, man, I can't coach someone on shame if I'm still dealing with shame. No, you can't. You, all you have to be is one chapter ahead to have expertise, yes. right? Here's the reality. In her situation, she had had this narrative around what it meant to be financially successful and what it meant to be an effective CFO, none of which ever said you have to manage your own books effectively 
it's only a matter of whether or not you can do it for your clients. So here's the narrative that we helped her step into and flip. Mm. We knew that the root was connected to her parents' relationship with money that's patterned forward to her. We knew where the shame came from, but her fear was, man, if all my clients know that my credit score is wrecked and my books have been wrecked for the last three to four years, they're all going to fire me. And I said, no. In fact, they're going to lean into you even more because you have more credibility, more understanding on the real cash flow issues that most business owners will face at some point in their world. And by you stepping into it, all you've done is reinforced your narrative that as I do what I do, my realm of genius, I have blind spots for myself, which means that I need my accounting team to actually keep me accountable, to give me the same tools, to make the same decisions, to know the tools I need to make decisions in my business, just like I do for you. My learning experience is I believed I could do it all and I never had to before. Now I realize and have the lessons I need to know to make sure that every entrepreneur gets the resources they need, the skill sets they need, and that I can help them navigate those areas they're afraid to step into where they don't look successful, right? It doesn't matter what industry we're in, but this is a perfect example of imposter syndrome. Yeah, totally. It's so true. And I love how you said this, this finding the root of what the parents taught her and stuff like that. Do you find that, there's either a, like, I'm going to blame everything on my parents, or I don't want to look at that with my parents type. Oh, it's totally, it's totally both. And it's typically one side or the other, depending on yeah. what the relationship is. Yeah. But what I find is even in the ones that are loyal and want to protect their parents, um, very frequently, we still find patterns that doesn't mean their parent was a bad parent, right. that their intent was good, but they did the best they could in the time. And so part of that process and reestablishing even the understanding of self is knowing how to navigate some of the repair from historical situations, mm. right? And how do we do that, right? So, I mean, I can sit here today and tell you for a fact that some of my anger came as a result of what I was protecting with my arm, some of the physical pain that I carried. But my dad also grew up in a very toxic, abusive environment. And my dad screamed at us when we were kids. He never hit us, but... I learned a pattern of understanding how to communicate. And I learned a way of communicating with my loved ones that I carried for years and ultimately started treating and speaking to my kids the same way I never wanted to be spoken to. Which is, and I couldn't even prevent it. No, and, and it's a really great kind of case study to look at because at the beginning of this conversation, you know, you talked about what your parents taught you was what helped you overcome this and yep. see from a new perspective. And yet it's totally okay to say, and, 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 and. Yes. there are parts of what they did that also created 20 years of frustration and shame and all that. How does so all what of I also know, and I want to make sure that this yeah. part said, I also know that they always had the highest intent and did the yes. best they could with the tools, resources, and knowledge they had at the time. And when we can get to that place of understanding with our parents, it alleviates a lot more oh. and it allows us to give them grace and compassion in a way that's different. Because I, I know, despite the anger or resentment that I might've felt directed towards them, they never did anything with malintent ever. Yeah. yeah. And so for that, it's like, well, if they never intended to harm me, then it was just a byproduct of the decisions that were made and the way it patterned forward, not something that I put in my son's life because I wanted him to feel this way. Right. And, and what a cool thing to be able to get to the place of recognizing that. So now you can be the change agent for your yeah. son. Cause inevitably, because you're human, you're going to do things that your son later on is going to be able to go like, Oh, dad taught me that, but that probably wasn't the best way to X, Y, Z. I see that in my own life, big time, especially with my dad's side of things. Right. Where I look at and be like, Oh, well, he didn't really know that much, but I had a huge aha a couple of weeks ago 
with all I, how I was using my story as the, I wasn't intending, and maybe in some ways I was intending as the woe is me to get people to have sympathy of, I never, I don't have a dad that I call up and ask, you know, advice from. I don't have that type of relationship with my dad because he left when I was eight and all this stuff. But you know what? My dad helped me rebuild the kitchen in my first house. He helped me uh, build a pergola in my second house. He helped me build a deck in this house at a time where he had cancer. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh, he still used the tools that he had. They might not have been the way that I thought they should be, or I gave him shame about or place shame on him about. I, I want to make sure though, that we, we dive this into the five pillars yep. of how you help, help this. Cause all of this stacks on to the five pillars of how people are actually running their business, running themselves. And how does that show up for people? So talk to us about the five pillars that we yeah. are aware of. The first thing that I really want to address is that um, the five pillars are not linear. They're more of an infinity that weave in and out of each other over time because it's mm. a process, right? Anytime we have a moment of pain, we create a coinciding layer of armor. We've got to heal that pain and shed that layer of armor. So it's a process of understanding, right? I, I appreciate all my shame. Yeah, I want to I want to I want to interrupt you there for a minute because I really appreciate you saying it's not linear because I know the people who are listening to this call are like, okay, tell me what I have to do. Step one is what? Step two is what? Step three is right. They think of linear. So I really appreciate that we're clarifying this is yeah. an infinite game. And the reality of it is, is I will tell you that these emotions, this trash, are going to be adversaries in constant pursuit until the day that you die. Mm. Right now. You, that All that means is you need to be vigilant in your efforts to continue to stay ahead of it and understand the patterns so that you don't have to be affected or impacted or create damage as a result of it. So all that said, I'm going to go through these really fast. So I give this as a caveat and a warning. I already talked fast, but if you need to slow it down in this section so that we can give you all the context you need, <laughs> love it. do it. And I'm okay with that. Um, the first is awareness. But I have to be really, really clear here. It may seem obvious that this is the first because we can't be intentional with what we're unaware of. But I'm not talking about typically the same type of awareness, because what I find in many cases, whether it's through therapy, sometimes coaching or sometimes reflection is people just become more aware of all the ways that they should be judging themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have to be able to, again, separate the shame and blame if we have any desire to move through this. And so awareness is not about just becoming more aware of all these things or the whys behind everything, but literally, what are you feeling in your body? What are those narratives that were formed in certain moments? How have they shown up in your life and affected you? Where and how are you moving? So for me, I dealt with shame and I dealt with anger. Okay. Shame was something that I identified on the business side before I identified it on the personal side, because I talk fast and I'm loud. We ran multiple clients that had multiple billion dollar businesses, very complex, long sales cycles, 10 to 15 buyers for an organization in some cases, very complicated and selling gray matter, which is all up here because I wasn't selling widgets. We were selling consulting services and solutions, right? But here's what would happen. I'd get 15 people in the room. We'd have written the client. I'm now introducing them to the team to have successfully start to offboard and transition to the team. And inevitably, somebody on my team would lean forward and be like, Shh, you can't talk so loud or talk so fast in this environment. And because I wasn't aware of it at the time, what would I do? I'd all of a sudden feel like I did something wrong because I was still the youngest one in the room, even though everyone in that room was there as a result of me. Mm. which is the really funny, ironic part is I couldn't see that at the time. I was like, man, I'm still fucking this up. Apparently I'm getting this advice, but I built those relationships for 15 months before my team had ever even met them. Mm. But when I shrink down, I'd bite my tongue. I'd all of a sudden like lower my voice, slow down. But was that me? No, that's not my authentic nature and cadence. All of a sudden I've changed myself. I've hidden, 
right? Anger would come up in moments like this. My wife would say, hey, babe, what do you want to do with the kids this weekend? And my shame filter, which then was covered with anger, would hear it this way. Hey, honey, you've not done enough to be a good husband and father here recently. So what are you going to do to make up for it this weekend? <laughs> and then immediately I'd get defensive. I'd puff my chest and I'd rattle off the 10 things I've done in the last four days to show her I'm a good husband and father. If I'm not aware of those patterns, I can't do anything about that stuff. Yep. Right. I had to become aware that shame impacted my business. It impacted my wealth generation. It impacted my health. It impacted my relationships at the deepest level. It impacted my relationship with pain. It impacted everything. Right. So I had to be able to move into a place of awareness. So that's the very first pillar. The second is ownership. Okay. Now I just gave you that example of where I rattled off to my wife, right? Because all of a sudden I'm here and I felt it this way. Well, I've just created damage in a moment that I was reacting to something that had nothing to do with in front of me. I told you what she said, but I told you what I heard. How often does that happen where we feel like we're not understood based on our intent? We're like, man, they just never seem to understand where I'm coming from. They can never seem to understand what my belief or my perspective is. Well, it's often because you're probably delivering it through some level of armor that's diluting the approach. So mm. ownership, when we create damage, we need to also create repair. I always say to our kids, I'm human, I'm gonna screw up. I'm probably gonna fuck you up as adults. You're probably gonna go to therapy and unpack shit that I unconsciously patterned into you, despite <laughs> the fact that I'm as intentional and aware as most people could be in this field right now. That said, I guaranteed we'll screw it up. But here's the reality. If I raise my voice at you, that's not how I believe you're supposed to be worth talking to. It's up to me to then go to my son and say, hey, dad lost, lost it in that moment. Yes. And I'm not actually mad at you. And the screaming had nothing to do with you and everything to do with something I was dealing with. Right? So powerful. So yeah. And so, so when my wife and I unpacked anger, which was less than a year after I left my risk management and play benefits consulting business to go help people turn into who they are, my wife sat on the back patio and we unpacked it. We unpacked my anger. This was two and a half years ago now. Mm -hmm. And it was going from the best place in my marriage I ever thought I'd be to not knowing if I'd be married for another 30 days. Wow. It was that bad. Okay. Wow. And so I had nothing to do but surrender in the moment to do the work that was necessary. And in the first week after we unpacked it, I went and sat down with her parents and I told her dad and her mom things that I'd done, things that had caused us to be disconnected from each other, ways that I'd protected them that caused our relationship to be affected, ways that I was treating her daughter and their grandkids. And her dad looked at me and reinforced one of the most important lessons I teach my son. He looked at me, essentially said, you talk too much, show me. <laughs> what we've been telling our son since the day he was born is the world will never judge you based on your intent. They will always judge you based on your actions. Of course. And so if there's a misalignment between your intent and your actions, it also tells you there's a misalignment with your intellectual and emotional narratives and the perspectives with which you see yourself. So ownership allows you to step into that. And again, it diffuses it. And it's about perspective seeking. Again, shame and blame are off the table. Yeah. The third pillar is called unpack. Okay. This is where the deep work happens. This is where we actually allow ourselves to feel our feelings, sit in it, understand it, understand those moments that we felt lost, disconnected, unworthy, those moments that we started to hide from ourselves, those moments that our voice was taken from us. Even minute moments that have created this pattern in you forward are real and we need to understand them. When we can get to the source or source, we can start to see not only how it was formed, but the belief systems that were formed as a result of it and the intellectual and emotional narratives that we've carried forward. Right. So very simple things around. I was told not to talk about money when I was a kid meant that my relationship with money for a lot of years was deeply impacted because it wasn't I was focusing on it from a place of control and restriction versus allowing it to flow into my world. Yeah. Right. 
money is energy, just like everything else, but we treat it like it's this other thing, yeah. right? And, and there's shame and blame around talking about it. But my embedded nature, because of the poverty my dad came from and the shame that was connected to money, me being told not to talk about it, led to a poor relationship with money for 25 years. Yep. Do you think my dad would have ever done that on purpose? No. But I had to unpack to really get back to the core of these moments that changed my relationship. Unpacking is where the healing is done. It's where the processing is done. It's where the understanding is done. And most people say, Brian, why do I want to go sit in this stuff? It just makes me feel like garbage. I don't want to feel like more garbage. It's not for the sake of feeling like garbage. It's allowing you to sit in it long enough until it points you towards what's important. Okay. Because that's when you can act. But the other relevant piece that I want everyone to remember, there's 40,000 brain-like cells in the heart called sensory neurites. Mm. They carry cellular memory, just like brain cells. And what they've shown is that if you go through the intellectual process of talking about the patterns of your past alone, and you don't embody the feelings, get in your body to understand the associated patterns connected with them, that you won't heal. Those patterns will continue to repeat because the cellular memory is what's causing you to see yourself differently in the moment. Unpacking is critically important. The fourth pillar is called flip your lid. Okay. Flip your lid is about being able to literally flip open your lid, lay out all your trash in the light and look at it objectively and non-judgmentally. Understand what's risen to the top. What are you feeling right now? What are you processing right now? Right. This is something that can be done in a moment. This is something that can be done at the end of the day, where in that case, we call it scan the can. Now, what does that mean? Everyone takes out trash in their house and their business every day. Very few people actually do a, a toll to see what trash they've acquired inside themselves throughout each day. Right. So flipping the lid could be now when my wife says something to me and I feel that moment of trigger, I can literally be aware in the moment, own in the moment, have unpacked and I'm flipping the lid real time to say, hey, honey, I just got triggered by what you said, which told me I probably didn't hear you correctly. Could you please restate it? And if I can't calm myself, then maybe we can just pause this and revisit it later. Flipping the lid is allowing me to stand in that moment of truth so I don't create damage because of a reaction that I had that has nothing to do with her. Right. Flipping the lid and scanning the can at the end of the day is doing a toll on what did I get triggered in? What were those moments of low frequency throughout the day? What are the narratives I told myself about them? Where are the patterns connected to those so that we can continue to remove those before we go to stage three memory consolidation and sleep and carry the shame and blame forward? Mm -hmm. We don't want to do that. Okay. The last step is move. This is how does the emotion move in your body? How does it move through your world so that you can move through it? Now, I told you shame moves through my body two different ways that, you're, that, that we're aware of. One of them is I shrink down, I bite my tongue, I do this, right? Another is I puff up, I get defensive. Shame moves through my body five or six different ways and anger moves through my body five or six different ways. Why is that important? Because until I understand the physiological response that's happening in my body to be able to distinguish across five different yeah. physiological protection points on the same emotion, how am I ever supposed to be able to escape it? Because it presents itself differently every time. So once I know how it moves in my body, then I can know how it moves in my world, i.e., where do I get triggered? Why is that important? Well, I have over 50 shame triggers and over 60 anger triggers that I'm aware of. When my two chihuahuas start barking, when the doorbell goes off and my sensory overload kicks in and I'm all of a sudden on edge and in protectionary state, I need to know that pattern so I can diffuse. Because if one of my two special needs kids jumps in my lap after that and I haven't already cleared it, what energy mm. and message do you think they're getting from me that has nothing to do with them? They jumped into your trash can in that moment. Bingo. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's okay. only when we understand the pattern between how it moves in our body and moves in our world that we can pause in those moments and move through them. Yeah. Often I ask people to ask two questions in that moment. Okay. It allows you to flip your lid, understand it. But when you feel that moment of trigger, no matter where it is, when it is, what it is, all I want you to do is just pause and ask yourself two questions. 
is what I'm reacting to due to what's right in front of me or the trash from my past. Here's a little hint. 99% of the time, it's the trash from your past. Mm -hmm. So you can give yourself some grace. But the second question, this helps point you towards what's important is, what am I protecting right now? Mm. Those are the five pillars. And when this is done in a business or an organization or an individual, it's the same thing, right? Leadership can put toxic shame through an entire environment. If we don't unpack that, understand the source, understand how it grew within an organization, we can't flip the lid in that organization and get people to move. We can't. And so it's, it's no different whether it's internal here or internal in your organization. It's the same patterns. I love that question to close it all out. What am I protecting right now? And that's why I pause because I'm like, wow, how powerful is that? Because there's so many literal moments where it changes from moment to moment of like, okay, I'm protecting my ego. I'm protecting my story. I'm protecting, you know, a lot of times I think it's easy for us to go, well, I'm protecting them or I'm protecting that or instead of, no, I'm protecting my vulnerability. I'm protecting my, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, um, great example. What was I protecting with my wife in that moment that I reacted when she asked what we were going to do? Yeah. Well, being a husband and father is the only thing binary in my world. It's the most important role I play. And I'm hearing it as she's telling me that I'm not a good enough husband and father. I'm protecting that Yeah. because I not want to prove and have her know what I'm doing and my intent. But again, it's only in the moments that I'm blind that I might believe I'm acting congruent, but I'm actually creating more damage. And why it's so important to to, to know these things. I know for me, I could totally point out times where I'm like, well, I'm protecting my shame, right? I'm not going to tell you that, but I'm, I'm protecting the shame because I'm comfortable in the shame. The shame has gotten me here where I am right now. Like there's a lot of positives. I could look around that shame of how, and I know this with high performers, right? They, they get to this place like, well, that drive of the shame of the embarrassment, whatever is what got me here. I don't want to be like that or like them. So I'm here. So it's obviously a good thing, right? Well, not until it damages everything around you. Well, and the reality of it is that you see this pattern out time and time and time again. I just had somebody on my podcast not long ago. He's worth $250 million at 44 years old. He woke up at age 40, realizing he was as empty as his 15,000 square foot house, despite the fact that he had more money than most people can ever wrap their minds around, Mm. right? Like this is a part of the human experience. And we really do have to start to center in the fact that this was part of my shift is that I believed that I was a fighter my whole life. I had to fight to get attention. I had to fight to get success. I had to fight to get over my pain. I had to fight to prove to the world all the, I mean, I was always fighting, but then I started to realize that fighting took me further away from what I wanted because it forces a side, it forces a pole. And I believe that the gift is often in the gray area. So I had to learn this concept of surrender because the reality of it is every bit of interference, every bit of like restriction, all the pain, all these things that I believed were what got me there actually took me further away, even though externally, I might've had a lot of money in the bank at some points I might've, right? Like it took me further away from who I was. And that was the greatest fear. And that's what most people say is they're like, well, what if I lose my edge? What if I lose what got me here in the first right. place? Right. The reality of it is, is I can promise you that that edge is not helping you. It's cutting you and cutting those around you in a way that you don't see. So despite whatever measure that you're chasing, Mm -hmm. what I would argue is it's not about having a blade that cuts, that gives you an edge. It's about having a string that can cut soap, that can cut cheese, but can also go limp, can fly a kite, can wrap around somebody with love. A blade has one purpose. No, that's a great analogy. And I think oftentimes when they say that they're, they're, I'm going to lose my edge 
about the thing that's right in front of me, not the long-term goal. Cause the long-term is where we're going to, I'm so worried about the thing. What's that analogy about holding sand in your hands, right? That's how you do it. It slips through. It's, it's so true. Awareness, ownership, unpack, flip your lid and move. Yep. Makes sense. It totally makes sense to this idea of how do we get that trash out? It's sneaking. It's going to get worse. It's not, what's that? Uh, Joe Polish says that thing, you know, uh, rotten fruit inside the refrigerator never gets better. And yeah. it's, it never suddenly it's like, Ooh, it's gotten riper now. It's like, it's like, you know, and we didn't, we didn't even talk about the concept of the human experience and all the weight and all the, all the disconnection points that trash gives you. But that's genuinely the truth. When the world tells you to push through and we push down, we start literally shoving down as much trash as we can that layers on mm. top of itself. It does. It gets heavier. It gets stinkier. It starts incrementally crushing us. And oh, by the way, all that trash and that armor that's associated with what we think is protecting us, but it's incrementally crushing us the longer we carry it. Yeah. Right. And we just don't know it because we build up adaptation it's like anything like you can add a feather on top of a feather on top of a feather and nobody can distinguish the weight difference and then all of a sudden 18 years later that person's carrying a million freaking pounds of feathers right the reality of it is is it's just so like true. this it's just that there's some things that weigh more and hurt us more and some things that are lighter but they all stack and pile if we aren't looking a way to unpack and move through it well let's let, let's touch on real quickly i know we're running out of time i want to i want to just know what is the, what is the almost guaranteed outcome of getting rid of the trash? Because I don't believe it's just a random. I think it's once we see, like you said, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. That's a guarantee. There's a guaranteed outcome of getting rid of the trash. What have you seen as the guaranteed outcome of that? The guaranteed outcome is people being able to literally stand in their power and potential become the authority in all the ways that they actually authentically are and get to live their life based on their terms, maybe for the first time ever. What that leads to is joy, freedom, and fulfillment and deeper, more intimate connections and relationships that allow you to surrender and allow the universe to flow for you. What I can tell you firsthand is I didn't realize the number of escalators, elevators, and stairs. I crawled on my hands and knees up the proverbial mountain passing because I believed that if it wasn't painful, it wasn't worth it, Mm. right? If it wasn't painful, then it wasn't going to be worthwhile for any of it. And so I literally would skip right by these things that would have skipped me further and further ahead. Now I'm surrendering to the flow and I'm getting to float without any effort when I used to literally crawl on my hands and knees and was barely treading water to catch my breath. I have so much ease and a great example for me, I lived 31 years with daily physical pain. I'm going on five-ish months right now with zero physical pain. Mm. And I think it's 100% connected to the final layers that were shed, at least in this state of awareness that I have and the deepest level of alignment and congruence that exists in my life. No, I, I, I'm a huge believer in the mind-body connection. We talked about that on one of my uh, recent podcasts of how it really does, like getting rid of so much of that pain that's connected to your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, the old old habits and stories mm-hmm. and programs that you have for sure. Wow. Wow. Well, Brian, I know that you just like filled us up with so much freaking information and just like the idea of freedom that we now can can look at through those steps. 
we have it obviously with people who are watching on uh, the video, but how can people best connect with you and find out more about what you do? Yep. If you are a web person, go to brianbogert.com. If you are on social media, go to at Bogert Brian uh, on any channel, including YouTube. Uh, we have a whole series of events where we actually walk through and teach people how to transform their waste into wealth. We do this for businesses. We do this for individuals and we help people actually become the authority in their space in those areas that they want to. So there's a lot that we're doing to create impact. A lot of our stuff is free because we genuinely want to impact over a billion lives as quickly as we can. So lean wow. into our world. If there's a place we can help you, we will. If there's a place we can help your business grow, you grow, we will. Um, and we go from there. That's amazing. I love it. Okay. So I end every episode with four questions based around your role. Uh, you have your role cool. as a husband, as a business owner and all that, but the ROLE role. Are you willing to play? Let's do it, bro. All right. What do you think is your highest and greatest responsibility on this earth? Being the protector and connector and guide in my family to ensure that I break the generational patterns and show both as the example and the embedded lessons within my kids, what's possible for mm -hmm. all of us. Love it. What do you want us? Uh, sorry. What do you want as the ultimate outcome for your life? At the end of your life, this is the outcome that I, I want to produce. I want to know that I created emotional safety with my wife, emotional safety with my kids that allow them to lean into exactly who they are, love who they are, know they're loved unconditionally, which will allow them to advocate for others and love them unconditionally. If I can continue to do the work that I'm doing, then at the end of my life, I will feel zero resistance or interference and zero pain still existing in the most important relationships in my life. And I believe what's possible. So I continue to reach. Uh, because it's, there is no final destination. There's only constant evolution of self. Hmm. I love it. What is your uh, ultimate, or sorry, what do you consider being the ultimate leadership role? I am going to go to say, I think that the ultimate leadership role are those leaders that are also protectors and connectors. What does that mean? They can walk into a space and ensure that everyone is safe. Everyone is protected. Everyone is seen and understood and everyone is connected. I think leadership is an environment that fosters people's ability to stand in who they are and do it in a safe manner without judgment, criticism, or being objectified. And I think when that happens in leadership, we don't actually have to lead that much because people will perform based on their own natural abilities versus trying to align to a standard that we've fabricated. Mm, that's beautiful. Okay. Between now and dead. What experience do you hope to have between now and dead? What experience do you hope to have? That's a really good question. We're on a mission to impact over a billion lives as quickly as we can. And what I hope I experience is, be, is that someday I wake up and just know that we've done it. It's not going to be Brian Bogert's name. It's going to be through collective impact. It's going to be through moving as many people as possible to move stuff through the world. But I do genuinely believe that at some point I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to have this feeling of completion and settled. Not that my work is done, but that, that my primary focus, mission and goal was accomplished. And I hope that I get to have that experience because I've envisioned it many, many times. But 
every time I envision it, I can't tell you what it's going to look like, when it will happen, how it will be experienced. And so I just continue to look at that with wonder and awe in the meantime. I, uh, as you said that, I just got this great, like kind of feeling smile came over me. I'm just like, Ooh, I can, I can picture that for you. Uh, I don't even see it as a hope. I see it as a certainty. I can see that where you wake up one morning, you know, you got your wife there, she's still sleeping and you just kind of have this knowledge. It's mm -hmm. a pure light and knowledge that comes over you of like, yeah. cool. And I believe it's going to happen too. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. So that's, that, cool. that's something I really, really hope to experience and cherish in my, my days left, however many they are. Yeah. And that's, that's the key, right? We never know. And so between now and, and, and dead, but whereas we leave this plane, this existence, what's going to happen. And Brian, you've, you've really fulfilled a lot of that with us today. The the people that you've touched through this conversation, myself, personally, I'll just go with me. I, if you, if no one else will listen, I'll let you know that that was a really huge connection for me. And I really appreciate it because it, I'm always looking for ways to look at myself, improve myself so that I can be better for my clients and all that. And my wife and my kids and, this was very much an emotional connection for me and I really appreciate it. And you sharing with us and being vulnerable and truly owning your role here on this planet to be that person who's going to be that connector, that provider, that safety for people, truly leading people in a, in a powerful way. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you, my friend. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you today. And thanks for building the platform for me to pour some good into the world. Yes, for sure. Well, those of you that are listening, I know that you were edified today and I really appreciate you listening in. Remember again, if you know somebody, if you thought of somebody during this show that you thought, oh, they need to hear this, feel free to share this message with them. Reach out to Brian, go to his website, connect with him. He's got resources. And even if it just sparked a curiosity for you, follow that curiosity. There's no, you know, no have tos. It's a matter of more information and, and growing from understanding how we're all connected through whatever tragedy happened in your life to getting rid of the garbage that is not needed and is not serving you or anybody else in your life. Connect with him, connect with somebody around you. Thank you again, again everybody, for listening to this episode of Your Own Your Role. We'll see you on the next one. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Own Your Role podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you're alerted for every new episode we release. And don't forget to write us a review and let us know how we're doing. You can also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, all the social medias. Just search at Dino Watt. And if you'd like me to come and help your team or audience learn to own their role in person, make sure you go to DinoWatt.com for more details. I'll see you on the next episode.